Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? That's a haunting question. To the book of Hebrews, and uh, we'll continue to do so. Uh, the plan starting this morning is to preach a series of sermons through the book of Hebrews. However, uh, normally uh, we would plan to spend maybe a year and a half to two years going through the book of Hebrews. It is just that rich in its teaching and its insight into the person and work of Christ. Um, and that would be our normal way of doing things, as uh, many of you know, is our pattern. Uh, however, what I would like to do with Hebrews is to preach one sermon per chapter. Thirteen chapters, thirteen sermons, that's it. Uh, we Baptists are not a betting people, but there is a pool in the back where you can sign up whether you think it will actually be 13 sermons or more. I want for us to go through the book of Hebrews in that fashion so that we sort of get it all at once, if you will, if you can call 13 weeks all at once. I want for us to go through the book of Hebrews so that we have an appreciation for the rich tapestry of the image of Christ that it portrays for us. Um, you know, I've, I've become convinced that the greatest um, problem and the greatest source of our problems as a body of Christ and as believers in Christ is that we just don't know Jesus well enough. I mean, think about how many times feelings have been hurt or things have been said or someone has misunderstood something and if only we had our eyes fixed upon Christ and understood who he is and what he has done for us that all these uh, petty things that we allow to frustrate our relationships and cause us problems in our thinking and our lives um, the, these things would just um, just sort of fade away in the light of the glory and the grace of who Jesus Christ is so I want for us to look at Hebrews of um, all the books in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, along with the Gospel of John, teach and assert the deity of Christ and the majesty of Christ in such a profound way. The Gospel of John, of course, uh, teaching us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then as you go through the Gospel of John, you're impressed with the relationship of Jesus, the Son of God, with his Father in heaven. And then he uh, unfolds the, the manner in which the Holy Spirit brings us into an awareness of that reality and, and calls us into an acceptance and embracing and living out what it means that Jesus is the Son of the Father. So the Gospel of John teaches us the deity of Christ, that He is God. And the book of Hebrews, no less, and in fact in a very elegant and very uh, majestic way, teaches us of the deity of Christ and what He has done for us and what he has accomplished. So that is why we're looking at the book of Hebrews. Um, I really do plan on just 13 sermons uh, to get through that. It's not enough, I understand that, but we will be hitting um, the, the major points and the highlights 
of every chapter. Now, we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. Uh, there is a tradition that Paul wrote it. In fact, in, uh, um, in your older translations, it might even say the epistle of Paul to the Hebrews. Uh, but there is no indication in the letter itself as to who the author is. Uh, Paul always identified himself at the very beginning of his letters. I, Paul, write to you guys. And then he would unfold the letter from there. Nothing like that in the book of Hebrews. Uh, some have thought that Apollos might be the answer. Some thought maybe John Mark and other names have been suggested. Uh, my favorite guess at this, folks, what I'm about to say I disagree with. I'm just offering it to you to let you know where the scholarship is. But one commentary said that, well, the author must have been Mary, the mother of Jesus, because only a woman could have written 13 chapters of torturous Greek and then said, I've written to you briefly. So um, <laughs> there are so many ways to get in trouble when you're preaching a sermon, and that is one of them. But what we do know is that the author to the Hebrews was someone who was passionately in love with Jesus Christ. And he wrote to his friends, he wrote to his brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, in uh, the, the, the letter to the Galatians, we dealt with people who were Gentiles who had become believers, and they were tempted to then go into the Jewish tradition to try and augment the gospel. And what we found was that the authentic gospel is the gospel of God's grace in Christ, and you do not add to that any works, any law, any merit of our own. So in Galatians, the, the problem was people who were Gentiles who wanted to embrace Judaism. Evidently, the readers to the, uh, uh, of the letter to the Hebrews uh, were Jewish believers. They already had experienced the richness of the tradition of Israel. Um, they were very much aware of what the Old Testament sacrifices were about. Um, and, and so when we start to read about Jesus being a priest after the order of Melchizedek, they knew what that was. They were, they were linked into that already because that was a part of their background. They, they understood about Moses being the one who led the children of Israel out of Egypt and through that Exodus experience. And they, and they understood and they remembered the number of times that Israel had stumbled and fallen and rebelled against God and the Israel. So in the letter to the Hebrews, we, we find the author appealing to those things, talking about those things, not having to explain them. So evidently, the, the readers were very much in tune with, with a Jewish um, uh, tradition and background. They knew their Old Testament uh, scripture. So um, the temptation that they were facing was in thinking that Jesus was just another step in that Jewish tradition. In other words, that, that, that they had been basically fine all along and all they needed was just a little booster shot and that booster shot was Jesus. And the letter to the Hebrews writes to tell us, no, it's absolutely Christ, the Son of God. And there is no other avenue other than faith and obedience to him, as we discover. And so he's writing to these believers, encouraging them to understand and to know who Jesus is. I hope you fall in love with this book as we go through it. Uh, just this morning in, in the first chapter, uh, we, we find uh, the text just starts out long ago at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. Now, there's so much grace in that verse. I'm, I'm telling you, that verse is an entire sermon, if not two sermons. There's a grace of God that he speaks to us at all. He says, in, in many times, there was never a moment when God left us bereft of a communication from heaven. 
There was never a time in which God said, I will not talk to my people. I will not, I will not consider them. I will not guide them. He said, in many times, in many situations, in situations of captivity, in situations of prosperity, in situations of defeat, in situations of victory, in situations of abundance, in situations of lack and drought, in every situation, in many times, God spoke to his people. And in many various ways, sometimes through a vision, sometimes through a dream, sometimes with a direct voice and a communication to the prophet, sometimes with a finger writing on the wall, sometimes in ways that we could not imagine, drawing those who were there into a new, deeper, more profound understanding of who God is. God has spoken in many, many ways. Oh, the grace of God that he speaks to us in many ways. You look at the Old Testament, you read through the scriptures, and there you find, if you like history, God speaks to you through history. If you love poetry, God speaks to you through poetry. If you love Proverbs and wisdom literature, God speaks to you through the wisdom literature. If you love prophetic literature, and the proclamation of who God is. God speaks to you through the prophets. In many ways, in many different avenues, God speaks to us. There is no one here this morning but that God has spoken in some way that you can understand and that will reach out and grab your heart and draw you to the Father. God has spoken to us in many times and in many ways, but in these last days. Now, our temptation is to see that word last days and to think it's just a chronological listing that, well, the last days must be, you know, the final days on the calendar. And so if it says these last days, then, then the end of history must be right around the corner. Folks, Jesus may come at any moment. I believe that. Jesus could bring the entire universe to its consummation. Jesus could bring the whole universe to the completion of his purpose for which it was brought into existence. At any moment, Jesus may come and demand that judgment and that assessment of every human life. Jesus may come at any moment. And in that sense, we are in the very last days. But folks, it's been 2,000 years. If it's another 2,000 or if it's tomorrow, Jesus is faithful. He is coming again. Now, we are living in the last days, and that's not describing the chronology of the days we are in. That's describing the quality. What kind of days do we live in? The people of the Old Testament lived in the former days. They lived in the days of anticipation. They lived in the days of promise. They lived in days in which they were looking for the coming of the Messiah. They had their sacrificial system, everyone reminding them that God had provided a means of forgiveness by the shedding of blood. But they knew that the blood of bulls and goats could not save them. And so they were looking forward to the promise of the Messiah. We live in the latter days. Jesus has come. He has been crucified on our behalf. He was buried. He's raised again, ascended into heaven. And we are living in the last days because the only thing left to happen in the course of human history and the history of the universe is that he would come again and every aspect of creation would recognize that Jesus Christ is Lord. We're in the last days. And in these last days, God has spoken to us. And he has spoken to us in his Son. 
The prophets came and preached and how we praise God for their message, how we just uh, rejoice to read of the, of the prophetic message and preaching ministry of an Isaiah who saw the glory of God in the temple or of a Jeremiah who with, with tears lamented the, 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 the destruction of Jerusalem, how we rejoice in the, even the, the minor prophets, each one bringing us a new insight into how God is working in history, how we praise God for an Elijah and Elisha who kept the nation straight. Oh, how David must have thanked God over and over and over again for the prophet Nathan who had come and shown him his sin and said, Thou art the man and had brought David out of that smug, self-righteous complacency into a confession and a repentance of his sin. Oh, how we love the message of the prophets. But folks, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He's not just another prophet. This is where other faiths and other traditions and other religions make a keen mistake to think that Jesus is just another prophet, that he just has more insight to offer, that he just has a new angle or twist on this thing called belief in God. No, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You behold the face of Jesus. You behold the face of God. When you feel the hands of Jesus holding you up and picking you up, those are the hands of God. When you see sense the voice of Jesus speaking to you. That is the very timber and cadence of the voice of God. God has spoken to us in these latter days in his son. Have you ever known anyone who, who has said that, that, well, I don't believe in God because I can't see him and I can't touch him? Well, the first guy who said that finally came face to face with Jesus. And Jesus said to Thomas, he said, Thomas, I want you to feel my hands. I want you to see and put your fingers in the scars. I want you to put your hand in my side. I want you to touch and I want you to experience the reality of who I am. Folks, God in his kindness towards us has sent his son, Jesus Christ. The very Word of God incarnate, made flesh, dwelling among us. 2,000 years ago, some 2,000 years ago, he walked the hills of Palestine. He traveled the avenues of Jerusalem and Jericho and Beth, uh, Bethsaida. He, he, he wandered through the, the, the countryside of Palestine. You could have seen him. You could have touched him. You could have heard him. But they crucified him and nailed him on a tree. They put him in the grave. They thought they were done with him. But Jesus Christ, risen, come forth, and God raised him from the dead. Never to suffer death again and he's ascended into heaven and now he resides at the right hand of the Father in the glory and the majesty of heaven. This Jesus is our God. He is the Son who shows us who the Father is. Oh, because Jesus is the Son and God has spoken through him, we know that God is a God of love and a God of grace and a God of mercy. We know that he is a God who will not abide sin. We know that he is a God who does not tolerate injustice. We know that he is a God who will not abide bigotry and prejudice. But we know that he is a God who, though he condemns our sin, rightfully so, has provided a means for taking the wrath of God from us, and that is his son, Jesus Christ. Oh, in language too deep and profound for words, in language that goes beyond just grammar and syntax, in a language that the angels cannot even speak, Jesus Christ tells us who God is because Jesus is God. He is the exalted son. 
in whom the Father has spoken to us. Here is the marks of his exaltation. In the last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. Look, folks, it's not as though God had this, this universe on his hands, and there was poor Jesus, and Jesus didn't have anything. And so God the Father goes over to God the Son. He says, well, son, it's about time you took over the family business. I'm going to give you the universe. Oh, wow, Father, thank you. Now I have the universe. No, Jesus has always been the heir of all things. It has always belonged to him. It has always been his by right. It has always been his to rule. It has always been his. He is the heir. He's the heir, the one to whom all things belong, through whom also God created the world. He's the very avenue through which God spoke, and there was light. God spoke, and the seas and the dry land were parted. God spoke, and life came forth. God spoke, and man was created in the image of God. It is by the word of God that creation comes into existence. It is through Jesus Christ that this creation comes into existence, through whom he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God. He's the very bright, shining glory of the Father. Oh, you and I could not see the glory of God and live. You and I could not abide it. With Isaiah, we would know that this was a disaster if God should appear to us because we are people of unclean lips. We dwell in a land and a people and a nation of unclean lips. And yet the grace of God purged the lips of Isaiah with a coal from the altar of sacrifice. We could not see the glory of God, but in his kindness and grace, he has sent us his son, Jesus Christ. In Christ Jesus, we see the glory of the Father. We see the glory of God. Oh, if you ever doubt the nearness of God, if you ever doubt the reality of God, if you ever doubt the truth of who God is and the impact he's having in the world today, just understand this. God sent his son, the exalted son, who's the very glory of the Father. Oh, the world doesn't see it. And a lot of times because of our rebellion, we don't see it. Sometimes because of our exhaustion, we don't see it. Sometimes because of the limitations of our minds, we don't see it. But Jesus Christ is the very radiance of the glory of God. Look upon his face and you see the glory of God. Oh, I've got to stop and tell you, this is one of the most practical things you can believe. You know, we're not just talking about some theological, you know, mystic staring into the glory of God and going, you know, just go haywire because Jesus is the glory. Jesus is the glory of God. What does that mean? That means the glory of God is available to you in your life. That means this life that you think may be of no account, you were created for the glory of God, and in Jesus Christ you can glorify the Father the way you were designed. The most practical thing you can do with your life is live for the glory of God, and we do that through Jesus Christ. He's the very and the radiance, what does he say? The very radiance of the glory of God, and he is the exact imprint of God's nature. Debbie's going to love this. This Greek word has to do with stamping. It has to do with taking a stamp. And when you had a, a piece of wax that had been heated up and softened and you put the stamp in the wax and you pulled it out, what was left there was an imprint. The Greek word for it was character. And Jesus is the very character of the nature of God. In Jesus Christ, you see who God is. Now, this scripture says that he is the exact imprint of God's nature. 
Folks, don't let anybody ever tell you that nowhere in the Bible does say Jesus is God. We're reading it right here. This is the Son of God who shows us the character of God, his character of love, his nature of mercy, his kindness, his graciousness. All we see in God, his attention to us and his concern for us, all that we find in Jesus Christ, who's the very character, the very stamp, the very imprint of God himself. And he upholds, that is Christ, upholds the universe by the power of his word, his word of power. It's all held up by Jesus Christ. Folks, I got to stop right here. Why would you look anywhere else? Why would you look to the wisdom of man? Why would you look to the philosopher? Why would you look to the financial advisor? Why would you look to the political leader? Why would you look to the latest celebrity and star? Why would you look to anyone else, anywhere else, than to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the radiance of his glory, the sustainer of the universe, the one to whom it all belongs, and the one to whom it is all aimed and pointed? Why would you turn anywhere else? See, this is why I say we don't know Jesus well enough. We don't understand who he really is. We've swallowed this story that he's just a nice guy who went around patting children on the head and telling nice stories. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the radiance of his glory, the very imprint of his nature. So that's, that's what we find out about Jesus. He's the exalted Son of God in whom God has spoken to us and called us unto himself. What else? Jesus is the exalted Son who has made purification for our sins. This is, uh, what, halfway through verse 3, after making uh, purification for sins. You know, um, in the English sentence there, he's just sort of getting started on another idea, another thought. In the Greek, it's all just one sentence start to end. Um, But uh, uh, after making purification for our sins, there's the problem, our sin. There's the problem. It is that we have rebelled against the will of God or we have treated God with indifference. We've become slow and lackadaisical and lethargic. We've been lazy towards God. And this is what the Bible calls sin. We rely upon ourselves. We rely upon human wisdom. And in our rebellion against God, we cut ourselves off from the grace of God and cut off from the grace of God. It is only death and the fear of death, the paralyzing fear of death that comes upon us. But God loves us so much that he doesn't leave us in our sin, but he sent his son, his exalted son, to make purification for sin, literally, to make us clean again, to wash away that sin. Oh, there's no philosophy that can take away your sin. There's no amount of self-help books that can take away your sin. You can try to be the best you you've ever been, and you can't take away your sin. You can have your best life now, but you can't take away your sin. Only Jesus Christ died in our place to take away our sin. And when he did so, he took it away from us as far as the east is from the west. He cleansed us from our unrighteousness. Oh, beloved, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And what can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. 
he has made purification for our sins. And in that one phrase, we find wrapped up the depth and the wonder of the cross for us. For on the cross of Jesus Christ, there he shed his blood, and there he is, the only possible sacrifice that would ever take away our sin. Oh, when he died on the cross, you, you understand, he's the one through whom all creation came into existence. He's the one who sustains all creation. We just read about that, that it all holds together by the word of his power. And when Jesus Christ died, it was like creation didn't know what to do. The sun was so confused, it didn't know what to do. And it stopped shining and darkness came upon the entirety of the world. All over creation a darkness descended when Jesus Christ, the mighty maker, died. They buried him in a tomb. Now, here's what human wisdom says. You bury a guy, he's dead, he's done, he's gone. You don't need to deal with him anymore. You don't have to, to bother with him anymore. And those who crucified Jesus thought they were done with him. They crucified him. God raised him raised him up in glory and majesty, raised him up victor over death, raised him up not as a resuscitation from death, but raised him up as the one who had conquered death for all eternity, raised him up as the one in whom now we have life everlasting. Oh, Jesus isn't a philosopher. He is a savior. He is not just one to talk about what God might do if you're good enough. He's the one who shows us and is what God has done for us in our sin. He made purification for sins. Why would you turn anywhere else? He may, after he made purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That means at the right hand of God. He was raised up from the dead. Then he ascended into heaven, where he is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Okay, here's my high church coming out. From whence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. If you recognize that, you know what I mean. But he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat down because the work of our salvation was finished. The work of our salvation was concluded. There was nothing left to be done. Somewhere we got the idea that Jesus died for our sins and so we come to the cross and we accept him as Savior and then we are, you know, then, then we're saved and those sins are taken care of. But then other sins come along and we mess up and we stumble and we fall. Wow, what am I going to do now? I already cashed in on the cross. Now I've got these sins. What am I going to do? The voice of religion says you'll do penance. You'll pray so often, you'll move so many beads so often. And if you die before you get that done, then we're just going to purge you in purgatory where you can work off your sins. Folks, Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father because there's nothing left to be done for our salvation. It is finished. And our salvation is entirely and totally secure in him. 
because Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, he is making intercession for us. That's what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8. He says he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and there he's, he's interceding for us. He is, he is just um, working on our behalf. And, you know, and it's not like the Father's arguing with him. I mean, let's, let's keep this straight in our mind. It's not as though Jesus the Son says, well, you see Wayne down there, you know, he's not much, but he's all we got right now, and maybe we can help him out a little bit. And the Father says, no, I, I know what's going to happen. He's going to mess up again, and I'm just about through with him. And Jesus says, oh, no, Father, please save him. No, it is the will of the Father that the Son would make intercession for us. It is the will of the Father that Jesus died for our sins. The will of the Father that he would keep us ever close to him. Oh, there's that. Okay, there's a rabbit right here, and I'm going to just chase him right down here. In Romans chapter 8, it tells us that the Holy Spirit is making intercession for us. In Romans chapter 8, it tells us that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, interceding for us for our well-being and for our life in the Spirit. Why would you pray to anyone else anything else? Why would you ever put your reliance and your trust anywhere else than in Jesus Christ? He's seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. And because he's seated at the right hand of the Father, he deserves all worship and glory and praise. The angels adore him. The angels worship him. In Revelation chapter 5, John says that he was, he was lamenting the fact that no one could open the scroll, and, and uh, we won't go into that. But, but the angel said, no, no, the, you, you need to understand, the lion of Judah can open the scroll. And John said, I turned to see this lion of Judah. What did he see? He saw a lamb standing as if slain in the midst of the throne of God. In the book of Revelation, the throne belongs to God. That's the whole point of the, of, of the revelation, um, that, that God is on his throne. Caesar's not on his throne. President's not on a throne. Philosophy's not on a throne. The world's not on a throne. Only God the Father is on the throne and the Lamb standing as, as if slain on the throne. Man, folks, there is the, the deity of Christ and Trinity all there, there together. But, but John says, I turned and I saw the Lamb standing as if slain. And what happened? The angels started to sing. The angels started to sing. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. In heaven, worship only goes to the Father, only goes to God himself, and therefore goes to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. The angels don't worship anyone other than God. And so when they said, worthy is the Lamb that was slain, they were worshiping God Almighty. Because he sits at the right hand of God. He deserves worship. Why would you worship anything else? Why do you worship anything else? And because he's at the right hand of the Father, because he, he's there at the right hand of God, he deserves our attention, our focus, and our praise. Paul writes in the book of Colossians chapter 3, first two verses, he said, set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Set your mind, set your attention on things above. Think about those things above. And when you think about things above, you are to think about Jesus Christ seated at the right hand of the Father. And then he goes on to say, and set your hearts on things above and not on things of earth. Set your affections and your emotions on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. 
He deserves our attention and our focus. Why do you clutter your mind with other things? I mean, it's amazing to me. I clutter my mind with other things. You know? And a lot of times, one of my, I'm, I'm looking for something to, to clutter my mind so I don't think about things that matter. It's called diversion. It's called entertainment. It's called television. Why would we think of anyone else but Jesus? Why would our hearts be given to anything else than Jesus? He is the exalted Son who has ascended and sits at the right hand of the Father. Uh, very quickly, very quickly. He is the Son exalted in heaven to whom the angels give praise and glory. Um, Paul, uh, Paul the, the, the book of Hebrews puts it this way. Uh, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Understand what uh, uh, the, the readers probably under, uh, thought when he talked about angels. Um, I don't know if you've ever done a study on it. Um, if you ever want to understand uh, the, 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 the reality of angels and the, and, and the, uh, uh, the the, the role and the work of angels. Study the Bible. Don't listen to Hollywood. Don't listen to mythologies. Don't, don't give in to the, uh, you know, just sort of the, the sort of sappy mythologies that, that float around. But in the scriptures, they would have understood that the angels were the messengers of God who brought the word of God so often. The angel of the Lord appearing. The angel of the Lord doing some work that would, that would rescue God's people. They understood that angels were these magnificent creations of God who did the bidding of God. And writing to them, the book of Hebrews says that Jesus is far superior to the angels. Far superior. Because he has a name that is far superior. Tradition tells us that there are archangels and, and all kinds of angels. And, and there's Michael and Gabriel is even mentioned in the New Testament. Folks, at the name of Gabriel, nobody's going to bow down. The name of Gabriel, no one's going to rejoice and lift up their praise and worship. At the name of Gabriel, no one will have a sense of satisfaction that their life is secure. But at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow of things, what does it say? Above the earth. Every knee will bow. The angelic knees will bow at the name of Jesus. Things on earth really will bow at the name of Jesus. Things underneath the earth, every living thing, every created thing will bow the knee at the name of Jesus and will declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is the exalted son to whom the angels give praise and worship. Uh, the rest of chapter 1 develops that point about the angels. We, we don't have time to go into it. There's about three or four sermons in it, and uh, we, we are racing through that. But in verse 14, just look at that. Are they not? Who? Are the angels? Are they not? Ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation, sent out for the sake of those of us who believe in Jesus Christ. What do the angels have? as their task. It is to glorify God and to serve the people of God. 
that we might glorify the Father as well. Jesus is the Son exalted above angels. So in chapter 1, I mean, he just starts right out of the box. This Jesus, far superior to anything you've ever, ever dreamed about. This Jesus. Beloved, why would you turn anywhere else? Why would you turn to anyone else? Why would you think for a moment that anyone else has any power at all to create life, to give meaning, to offer purpose, to give definition? Why would we give our time and attention to anyone else but to Jesus, the exalted Son of God? Let's bow for prayer together. Father, how I thank and praise you for the gift of your Son. How I thank you that by grace you've opened our eyes to see him as he is. Father, how I thank you that you have brought us to this place and opened our hearts that we have just some sense of how exalted Jesus is, your Son, our Savior. Father, I'm praying for the person here this morning who does not know Christ. Father, I pray that this is the hour, this is the moment, your Holy Spirit would invade the heart, bring conviction of sin, conversion of the heart, and confession of faith. Father, for my brother and sister struggling through life, I pray your Holy Spirit would open the eyes to see Jesus and to follow him. Father, for your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.